The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, December 20th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. What is better for society, Amazon or marijuana? Let me be more specific and also explain why I'm asking you this. New York City, New York State, but the city also, is inviting in Amazon. You've probably heard. People are quite upset about that. They're also inviting in marijuana. The governor and mayor announced the legal trade of marijuana will begin, they hope, they plan. And I have sensed, at least in the circles that I travel in, the announcement about Amazon was treated much more direly than the announcement about marijuana. Maybe this is just people I know. Maybe I operate in circles that are stoned and they make midnight runs to White Castle as opposed to next day prime deliveries of hamburger meat. Eh, you know, it's all inflected by the people that you deal with. But the reason I compared the two was I heard what the tax revenue would be for each. So this is for marijuana. Conservatively, he says the state could see $435 million a year in tax revenue, while New York City could collect about $336 million. And here is James Patchett, the New York City Chair on Economic Development, talking about Amazon's tax benefits. Over the next 25 years, New York City will receive over $13.5 billion in tax returns, and New York State will receive $14 billion. But also the cost of marijuana will be high, maybe not in subway ridership, but there will be costs. There'll be plenty of high driving and people falling down and hurting themselves and psychosis does seem to go up. Now, it's a little bit of an unfair comparison because with marijuana, we're talking about legalizing it and there are huge societal costs and injustices to keeping it illegal. So we're comparing a legal thing, Amazon, that no one says should be illegal, but should be regulated to a thing that is now illegal that should become legal. But once they are both legal, what do you think will cost New York City more? Just think about it like a societal phenomenon that has benefits and costs. I think right now more people would say that Amazon has more costs than benefits and marijuana, since it's becoming legal, has more benefits than costs. I'm not so sure. I think we've determined, just in terms of the tax revenue, that the benefits of Amazon will be bigger than the benefits of marijuana, and I think we are downplaying the costs. Anyway, I was kind of Uh, in love with this question for myself, and maybe you can ask it to yourself, because I think that it does point to the difference between a liberal and a conservative. I think almost all liberals would choose Amazon as more of the problem of those two, and I think most conservatives would say marijuana is more of the problem. As for me, a guy somewhere in the middle, maybe more towards the liberal end, I am in favor of legalizing marijuana. I just know that it will come with costs. And there is no free next day shipping. On the show today, I spiel about, well, you know all the problems we've been having? There's a solution that I guarantee you will take all those problems away. The New York Times printed it. They quoted a professor. It's quite amazing. But first, we have our first announced presidential candidate on the show. It is, let us be honest, a candidacy in service of an idea. And the idea is a guaranteed wage for everyone. Universal basic income as told through presidential candidate Andrew Yang. We now officially are joined on the gist by 
the first presidential candidate we've had as a guest. Now, obviously, Mitch Landrieu, Hickenlooper, Cory Booker, all those guys who are just guests, they're going to run. But we have an announced candidate sitting here, and he has an interesting idea. His name is Andrew Yang. He's the founder of Venture for America. And the candidacy, well, I'm going to ask Andrew in a second. It seems to be in service of the idea of universal basic income, which is uh, give everyone $1,000. I don't want to oversimplify it, but one of the appeals of the idea is it's pretty simple. Andrew, thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. So in order of what we're going to do is we're going to get to your solution. We're going to get to why you're marrying your solution to a political campaign. But first, and I think this is by far the most compelling thing and really in uh, the area of your expertise, is your analysis of where the economy is now. So before we even get to your solution, tell me what you're seeing about the economy and automation and how dire the situation is. Sure. So I spent seven years working with hundreds of entrepreneurs and companies in the Midwest and the South, cities like Detroit, Birmingham, St. Louis, Cleveland. And what I saw was that even as the companies I was working with were creating dozens of jobs, automation had eliminated thousands of jobs, tens of thousands, and it was just getting more and more extreme. That we're in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of the world. And the third inning has brought us Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, so to me, the proximate cause of Donald Trump's victory in 2016 was that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states he needed to win and did win. And what we did to the manufacturing workers, we're about to do to millions of retail workers, call center workers, fast food workers, truck drivers, and on and on through the economy. What, and so, what were the first two innings? So inning number one was the deregulation of the financial services industry. Mm -hmm. And then inning number two was the decimation of manufacturing workers and communities. The third inning we're in right now is the elimination of brick and mortar retail, yeah. where 30% of American malls are going to close in the next four years, similar number of Main Street stores. And if you're listening to this, you probably notice storefronts closing in your area. And then you think, oh, that makes me sad. But then you realize you haven't set foot in that store in, in weeks or months because you have an Amazon Prime membership that just gets shipped to you. Tell me about truck driving, because this is my favorite slash most chilling part of what you talk about. Yeah. So driving a truck is the most common job in 29 states in the U.S. There are three and a half million truckers, 94 percent male, average age 49, average education in high school. and make about $46,000 a year. It's one of the most lucrative blue collar jobs. Mm hmm. And there's also a shortage of truckers. Uh, you know, it's a high turnover industry. It's hard on your body. On the other side of the country, you have hundreds, maybe thousands of the smartest engineers working on trying to make self-driving trucks because there's a pot of gold of $168 billion a year if we can automate freight. Uh, and so they tell me, I talk to them, they say, we're 98% of the way there. Mm -hmm. Last 2% stubborn, but we can get there. And the way they can address the last 2%, they believe, is that they're going to equip trucks with teleoperating equipment where so like drones well so so there's a truck a robot truck and then the truck's gonna go beep 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 like i don't know what to do or my confidence level is less than 99.9 percent .9 because the weather's bad or the road is shitty or whatever it is mm -hmm. and so then a teleoperator sitting in a warehouse in nevada or arizona is going to beam into the truck just going to be able to see in front of the truck just like they were driving they take over the truck for a couple minutes and then the computer is like okay i feel confident again and then they beam back out right so, but the question is, what's the ratio going to be between teleoperators sitting in these 
warehouses and the three and a half million right truck and if it's not something like i don't know pick a number five to one it, the economics of it don't make sense it's going to be something like 50 to one okay truthfully. so we're going to eliminate 98 percent of trucking jobs so not not yeah well, essentially over time but like so what's going to happen is um, long haul trucks are going to stop 15 miles out of the city and then a trucker is going to get in there and then drive it for the last 15 miles mm-hmm. so you're not going to get rid of like all three and a half million truckers. There's still going to be a need for like, let's say like hundreds of thousands of them. Right. But then you have to think about the second order effects because there are another 5 million Americans who work in truck stops, motels, and diners that rely on the truckers getting out and eating a meal. And so even if you have trucks that drive cross country and then you get in the last 15 miles, you could say, hey, this is a victory for truck drivers because they'll be able to live near their families. They don't have to spend all this time on the road. It's going to be easier on their body. But you're going to devastate hundreds of communities around the, the country that rely on truck stopping. And I was just at the country's largest truck stop, Iowa 80, in Davenport, Iowa. And it says very proudly, 5,000 truckers and other people stop here every day. And so you think, okay, let's say that 5,000 goes to 3,000 or 2,000. I mean, the second order effects are devastating. Yeah. And as president, my plan... Uh, is to move towards a freedom dividend where every American gets a thousand bucks a month, but also to appoint a trucking transition czar. Because if you look at the $168 billion we're going to save by automating freight, that's enough to create a really meaningful runway for people who are going to be dislocated in the years to come. Okay. So you mentioned your universal basic income, and that is a thousand dollars a month for everyone. Who would get a thousand dollars a month under your plan? Under my plan, every American adult between the ages of 18 and 64 would get $1,000 a month. No questions asked, free and clear. Okay, so there are 50 million under 18 and there are 75 million over 18. Yeah. So your universal basic income plan isn't really universal. 125 of our 325 million people wouldn't get it. Yeah, that's right. So about 200 million Americans would get it. Uh, The headline costs about $2.4 trillion a year. $2.4 $2.4 trillion a year. Right now, our budget's what? Four? Four, four yeah. trillion? Yeah, so right. this would increase our budget by something like 60%. Well, you have to look at it. It doesn't really increase the federal budget at all. All, all we're doing is taking money and deploying it into our hands, the owners and shareholders of this country, of this society. And so you're not creating like a trillion dollar government program. It's quite the opposite. And the $2.4 trillion, it sounds like a big number until you break it down and then it becomes very affordable very quickly. So the value-added tax, because our economy is so vast, it would generate about $800 billion in new revenue. And that $800 billion plus a significant fraction of the $800 billion we currently spend on 126 welfare programs plus, and here's the fun part, if you put $1,000 a month into Americans' hands, we're going to spend it. We're going to spend it on car repairs and tutoring for our kids and nights out. All of that goes to grow the economy. It creates between 3 and 4 million jobs. It grows the economy 10 to 12%. And then we get back about $500 billion of that new economic activity and tax revenue. And then we save hundreds of billions on emergency room health care and incarceration and homelessness services and all these things. Like right now, we, we say like, oh, don't spend money on people. And we end up spending money on them in much worse ways and much higher levels. Would the expense of this program preclude another big swing like free college for all or real nationalized health care? Can't, so, can't pay for everything. Well, here, here's the thing. So I'm 100% for universal health care and Medicare for all, single payer. It's the only thing that makes sense. But the people who think we don't have money for it are completely getting it wrong and backwards because we spend twice as much as other industrialized countries in our health care right now. It's just not coming out of the public sector. It's coming out of every family's budget, every company's budget, every employer's budget. So if you look around, I mean, we're, paying, we're spending 18% of GDP 
on healthcare to worse results than any other industrialized like we're like living in the worst of all worlds so anyone who says we don't have the money to pay for it like they they couldn't be more wrong because we're spending twice as much as other countries um, we just need to take that burden off of families and businesses and have the government pick it up but it would be the greatest stimulus of the private economy that you can possibly muster because if i'm an employer uh, right now and i've i've been in the situation when you employ someone you're actually discouraged from hiring them because of their healthcare expenses. And that's one reason why 94% of the new jobs created in the U.S. since 2005 have been temporary gig or contractor jobs that don't have healthcare benefits because like employers are like, anything I do, I just have to avoid trying to pay for that person's healthcare. Wait, Andrew, are you saying that we can have Bernie Sanders' idea of free college and we, we can have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's idea of free healthcare and also your idea of this universal basic income? They're all possible? Very much so. I mean, like we are the richest, most advanced society in the history of the world. We can afford these things really straightforwardly. The The only thing I disagree with uh, Bernie and the camp on is that like I'm for the spirit of free public college education, but we have to stop fantasizing that if everyone gets a college education, that all will be well. Because the underemployment rate of recent college graduates is 44%. That is, they're doing jobs that don't require a college degree. And only the top 32% of Americans graduate from a four-year college. So you're looking at subsidizing a path of the top third of the population that may or may not actually end up revving up the economy the way you want. Um, You're much better off just putting money directly in the hands of American adults, having some of them go to college for sure, and then you're partially paying for it through the freedom dividend, but also having people pursue technical and vocational apprenticeship, which we need much, much more of, and also have people starting small businesses uh, with that freedom dividend. That's a much more effective use of resources than pretending that our economy is still like it was in the 60s, where if everyone goes to college, it's a silver bullet. Okay. So my last question is the vector, how you've uh, taken this idea and what we've turned it into, which is a presidential campaign. And the question is, Is it the best way to truly honor and service the idea? Explain to me why you running for president, which I'm going to say you're probably not going to win. I mean, if people listening want $12,000, they could wait for universal basic income or put a dollar on you in the uh, betting market. No, I'm I'm at 200 to one. Oh, 200. But what's Ocasio-Cortez who literally can't run? I I saw her in Patty Power at like 250 to one. Anyway, here's my point. Give me the case that you're doing more to advance your idea by running for president than actually running for a seat that you could win. Well, part of it is the urgency of the situation. So, again, Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016 because of what happened to the manufacturing communities. And we are in the midst of the retail apocalypse. And then the next inning is going to be self-driving cars and trucks. Like, how much time do we really have to keep this society strong and whole before the shit really hits the fan. And unfortunately, we do not have much time. McKinsey, Bain, MIT, all project between 25 and 30% of American jobs subject to automation by 2030. That's 12 years from now. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a problem solver. I'm not a career politician. And frankly, I do not give a shit about a political career. Like, you know, I mean, honestly, it's like, like, you know, those jobs suck. I mean, if you look <laughs> at them. Will they be automated? I mean, Have if, you seen if Mitt Romney? If, Maybe they already are. <laughs> if we're lucky, there's going to be an AI making the important decisions and then some politicians is there to make us feel good. I take any sort of A or otherwise. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you're going to try and solve a problem for the fact that we're going through the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of the world, then if I like I mess around like running for some congressional seat and then be like, oh, I'm going to try and climb the ranks. I mean, frankly, like that would strike me as a dishonest bullshit way of trying to solve the problem. 
Uh, so let, let's say though, again, like you make the case, the American people, and I've been to Iowa six times. I'm heading there for a seventh time next week. If you want to build a new human centered economy, we can actually get this done very, very quickly. It does not take, again, anything more than a majority of us stepping up and saying, this is what we want. So my campaign now has already raised hundreds of thousands of dollars from donors around the country. It's really touching. Like, I can show you the real-time tracker. It's like, the average donation is only $11. So I I joke that my fans are even cheaper than Bernie's were. But we can get this done. And if anyone listening to this says, hey, I want to build an economy that centers around human beings, have a trickle-up economy, just go to yang2020.com and let's make this happen. Andrew Yang is the founder of Venture for America. His new book is The War on Normal People, The Truth About America's Disappearing Jobs and Why Universal Basic Income is Our Future. And oh yeah, there is that Yang 2020 thing. Great to meet you, Andrew. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been been awesome. And now the spiel. Right before it was announced that the adult in the administration, Jim Mattis, would be stepping away in February. The toddler atop the administration, Donald Trump, had this to say about how he knows that Democrats aren't being sincere when they say we don't need the wall. It's only a game when they say you don't need the wall. You can look at their eyes and you can say, well, they're not telling the truth. Stupid us. What we've been doing is we've been using Trump's words. So looking at the mouth and listening with our ears, that's what we've been using to determine truthfulness. But no, it's in the eyes. The Toronto Star's Daniel Dale has counted 3,000 or so lies, demonstrable lies Trump has told out of his mouth or his Twitter fingers. But how many of those include ocular confirmation? You know, it's dispiriting. We know it's dispiriting, this erosion of truth, the wild statements that spew forth thousands of times and several times a day. And there seems to be no way to hold this president to account. But I know of a solution. First, let me list some more bad stuff. The Homeland Security Secretary, Kirsten Nielsen, was on the Hill. She took great umbrage at the words of Representative Luis Gutierrez of Illinois. Shame on us for wearing our badge of Christianity during Christmas and allow the secretary to come here and lie. Thank you. Time of the gentleman has expired. The secretary would care to respond to any of that. Only then to say that calling me a liar are fighting words. I'm not a liar. We've never had a policy for family separation. I'm happy to walk the gentleman through it again. A policy of family separation would mean that any family that I encountered in the interior, I would separate. It would mean that any family that I found at a port of entry, I would separate. It would mean that every single family that I found illegally crossing, we would separate. We did none of those. So she's saying since some families weren't separated, that means no families were separated, even though clearly thousands of families were separated. It's like saying, look, if we had the death penalty for murder then everyone who committed murder would be put to death. Since that's not the case, obviously we don't have the death penalty for murder, except we have the death penalty for murder in a lot of states. You might say she's lying when she constructs that argument, but of course those are fighting words. Although, if they were fighting words, wouldn't she be fighting right now? This spat among officials is depressing, but you know what? I have a solution. I have a reason not to be depressed. A professor told me about it. But let's also note that the overall issue, aside from two public servants getting into it, that's really depressing. And it's also seemingly really intractable. You have immigrants 
coming to America because they're fleeing horrible situations. And that that's such a sympathetic situation. But it is true, I think it's true, that we can't have open borders, simply open borders. So there has to be some rules about who gets to come in and how they get to come in. But what do you do? How do you make those rules? How do you be open to these sympathetic people and not be racist and not be exclusionary, but also have actual borders and have an actual country with actual laws. Man, it's a conundrum. Luckily, I have the solution. The New York Times told me about it. Some more bad things. Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. Guess what? I can heal those wounds. Brexit? Hey, don't sweat it. And uh, let's throw in the Rohingya genocide. But this thing I read has got that all covered. Are you ready? In the New York Times a couple of days ago, philosophy professor Todd May floated the mother of all cure-alls. Let's kill ourselves. Jonesing for Jonestown, but on a much bigger scale. Think of Heaven's Gate as beta testing because the New York Times poses this question, would human extinction be a tragedy? Now, since I encountered the article in print form, I I knew it was kind of ruined for me that the words beneath the question filled up more space than three letters, Y-E-S. It seems kind of an insane question to ask. And everyone who's ever tried to act on that question in the affirmative, we do think of them as the monsters of history. It's sort of a hypothetical that when transformed into the literal usually results in arrest or should. But the New York Times is an august publication, and Todd May is a tenured professor. In fact, according to Wikipedia, Todd Gifford May is a political philosopher who writes on topics of anarchism, post-structuralism, and ready for this one? Post-structuralist anarchism. Way to branch out with that third discipline, Professor May. Perhaps he breeds lions and tigers and ligers. The piece, Would Human Extinction Be a Tragedy, is subtitled, Our Species Possesses Inherent Value. Okay, that's Key acknowledgement goes on to say, but we are devastating the earth and causing unimaginable animal suffering. Good counterpoint. I am torn. Should we stay? Should we go? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be settled in the next 900 words or so. I read it all. I'm unpersuaded, which you might have surmised given the fact that I am sitting here right now and haven't shuffled off this mortal coil. Professor May spends a lot of time in the piece anticipating counterarguments and defining terms and acknowledging anticipated objections, but none of that really gets to the central component of the argument that makes the thesis really disturbing. Because what he wrote is that Ted Danson, Ira Glass, Oprah Winfrey, and every other human on earth should die, or maybe they should die. Let's bat it around. So one of the things he says is that this would only be a loss from a human viewpoint, and that viewpoint would no longer exist if we went extinct. He goes on to say, to even ask the question of whether it would be a tragedy if humans were to disappear from the face of the planet requires a normative framework that is restricted to human beings. Yes, yes, it is true. It does require that normative framework. Also evil, a deep and abiding evil, true evil. Think of all the evil people in history. Who were the evilest? Pol Pot, he killed 2 million people. Hitler, he killed 12 million people. Mao, he was the worst, they say, 45 million people. You know what was wrong with these guys? Don't say it was the 2 or the 12 or the 45 million. It was the billions they left alive. That was their real misdeed. Or maybe it's that genocide can still be considered a misstep. But speciousside, well, that's a triumph. Perhaps it's like in the game of hearts when you try to shoot the moon, 
If you do it all the way, you win. But if you do it even almost all the way, you get a lot of demerits. Or maybe it's just that if all humans are gone, there will be no humans to form higher order thoughts about the absence or presence of human beings. So without any humans, who's going to be here to fault us? It's not ethnic cleansing. If all the ethnicities are cleansed, then it's just cleansing of the earth, of this infestation, meaning us. May goes on to write, To be sure, nature itself is hardly a Valhalla of peace and harmony. Animals kill other animals regularly, often in ways that we, although not they, would consider cruel. How do you know? Maybe if the humans are gone, the gazelles will wind up composing the gazelle version of op-eds about lion predation. Of course, gazelle op-eds will be like uh, an ear twitch and a pheromone, but I don't know, who are we to judge? No one. We won't be here. May goes on. But there is no other creature in nature whose predatory behavior is remotely as deep or as widespread as the behavior we display. Well, what does that tell you? It tells me we're doing something right. We've got the opposable thumbs and we have access to the tools. If we didn't, you know what would happen to us? We'd be eaten by the species with larger teeth, sharper claws, and many, many fewer endowed chairs. May roots a lot of his argument in the definition of tragedy. He has this part where he says, In theater, the tragic character is often someone who commits a wrong, usually a significant one, but with whom we feel sympathy in their descent. It is humanity that is committing a wrong, a wrong whose elimination would likely require the elimination of the species, but with whom we might be sympathetic. So theater, which is invented by humans, has this construct, which is only humans have constructs, and the construct is this. A flawed character is punished, but we as humans feel sympathy for that character. And only humans feel sympathy. Well, also maybe Sully H.W. Bush. So because of that, we should be punished. Punish all of us. How is that theatrical? Because who would be watching that play? Theater also has a concept. I mean, I've seen many, many plays where an innocent is killed. Ophelia in Hamlet or Lenny in Of Mice and Men or in Todd May's play Everyone in the World. Pick a different theatrical construct, which is the innocent who is killed unfairly, and I guess we all live. Pick the concept of tragedy, well then we all die. If Todd May had focused on musicals, maybe we'd all sing. Singing, by the way, in the arts are perhaps one saving grace that May allows. Quote, we create art of various kinds, literature, music, and painting among them. We engage in sciences that seek to understand the universe and our place in it. Were our species to go extinct, all of that would be lost. But still, we're fucking it up for the elk. So sorry, Einstein, Mozart, Shakespeare. You know what? Those guys are dead anyway. What I mean today is, screw you, Margaret Atwood, Zadie Smith, Beyonce. Gotta make room for the Malayan weasel. And notice how he doesn't say, you know, a factory worker or a barber or a line chef rates at all in his argument for preserving the species. But, you know, maybe, maybe animals are better. Maybe animals deserve. Here's a headline. Quote, after bloodbath, the National Zoo's naked mole rats finally choose their queen. The summer started with 17 adult mole rats. There are only 13 left. Zookeeper Kenton Kern said, yeah, they've been fighting and killing each other. They have mole rat wars to determine who's going to be the queen or who's going to breed with the queen. We're hoping things will calm down a little bit now. So as to the question, would human extinction be a tragedy? Seems like things will suck for the mole rats either way. 
And you know what? A lot of stupidity can occur under the guise of just asking questions or thought experiments. What is a thought experiment except an idea so bad you can't even own it? This op-ed was met with some derision, but mostly from the right. National Review and Ben Shapiro invade against it. Notice that music and literature were listed as humanity's virtues by Todd May, not podcasts and magazines. But on the left, this piece went over-countenanced, nodded along with, left to stand as legitimate, not by everyone, but by enough people. The right took the very easy tact of saying, oh, this is an example of colleges and the academy making daft arguments. But the left, and by which I mean kind of any sober-minded thinker who engaged with it and took it seriously, I believe they are committing species treason. To think it may be true, don't you have to look beyond specific actual people? Don't you have to not see people, not see children, your children, other people's children as actual people deserving a chance in life? Don't you have to consider humanity as an undifferentiated mass or a invasive species? That phrase that maybe you've heard, it's applied to different people throughout history. He loved humanity, but hated people. That's a description of a misanthrope. And this piece is an example of misanthropy. It's also, I think, a little bit of a sign of depression. Depressed people, smart depressed people, can often try to argue that their depression is earned and deserved, and maybe it is. I'm not here to say the earth is in great shape, but it's better not to be depressed. Luckily, I have seen this argument played out, and it was through art, perhaps the saving grace of art. The specific work of art was in the seventh season of Family Ties, and Jennifer was becoming obsessed with environmentalism. We're a little worried about... uh the way you're dealing with this uh, ecology issue. You mean how I'm dealing with the end of the world? Yes. You're not handling it well. (laughs) (laughs) Who could? I mean, it, it really makes everything we do seem really stupid and pointless. I mean, why go to school? Why have a career? Or why raise a family? It's all going to be over in a few years anyway. So Jennifer sees a school counselor, and she depresses him, and he moves to a sheep farm. I love this episode, and I think about it all the time, because the specific environmental issues they talk about are seemingly hopeless. The ozone layer, clean air and water, saving the whales. And you know what? Those have actually improved a lot. We've long had this anxiety over real bona fide issues, issues that seem intractable, but they weren't hopeless then. I do have to say that Jennifer makes a reference to the trapping of greenhouse gases, and that one has proved to be trickier. However, Mrs. Keaton has some great wisdom for her daughter. But the problems are so much worse now. That's why they need more commitment. You can't allow yourself to get overwhelmed. You are so bright, you're so aware. Can't afford to lose you in the struggle. So at the risk of turning a serious issue into a sitcom that ties up neatly in a bow, I thought of this episode in addressing this op-ed. Then again, I thought of the episode of Family Ties where Alex rents out the house for the big game and a kangaroo winds up in his living room. But the point is that this particular episode of Family Ties with Jennifer as the depressed environmentalist, this has some great lessons. The kind of people most distressed by the state of our world, and perhaps most open to an end-of-humanity argument are the exact same people who we need to recognize the depth of the problem and to save humanity. 
Now, as for me, that's not my job. I'm here to mock tenured professors and to solve questions of special suicide with clips from old NBC sitcoms. And that's it for today's show. The Gist producers are Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who wonder what's worse, Angel Dust or Tesla? TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She thinks we could save Medicaid with this one scene from She's the Sheriff. The Gist. Sit, ubu, sit. Good dog. Oomperu, depperu, dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>